Welcome to Grace on Tap. I'm Mike Agley. And I'm Evan Gertner. And this is a podcast about the people, the events, the ideas around the Lutheran Reformation, specifically looking at them through the lens of some of the different documents from that era. So in this episode, we're going to look at two sermons that Luther preached, uh, both of them in 1519. And we'll also be talking a little bit about a document that Luther wrote on, uh, I think it was on the the Lord's Prayer, on how to pray the Lord's Prayer. It's more something to teach his folks uh, in his congregation on the meaning of the Lord's Prayer. Now, for the beer, every episode we feature a different beer, typically from Michigan. And this one is no different. This is a Michigan beer brewed in Detroit. Stroh's. I, I, when I was a kid, we used to drink Stroh's. Uh, well, you know, quite a bit, probably more than we ought to have. Uh, this is, uh, now Stroh's went out of business, was bought, and uh, I'm going to say they tried to buy Schlitz, and they did buy Schlitz, but it was too much for them. They went out of business. Now there's a reboot. And this new reboot is not the Stroh's that I drank growing up. This is uh, from an, a recipe from the uh, Stroh recipe, Stroh family recipe from... I think 1880 or something. So this is a, a, a little bit different than the Strohs uh, from the 1970s, 1980s. So let's uh, let's give this one a try. That's good beer. Yeah, and that is uh, a Pilsner, which is a little bit different than the, the hoppy craft brews that we've had recently. Uh, it, I don't see many craft breweries doing Pilsners. No, no. Pilsners are, are tough. To, uh, tough to do, and uh, but this this is this is, is that good. why they don't happen too often. I think huh? so. Yeah, I, I know pilsners are they're considered a lot. Well, lagers typically are tough, right? Because yeah. they have to be refrigerated and you have to control the temperatures. At least when I was brewing beer, I know I I struggled with lagers. Is Ales I could do, They'd go. They it was just really hard to control the temperatures. It was really hard to to get a good beer. Uh, with the lagers. And, and so uh, at least when I used to brew, I used to do all ales because I, I knew I could, I could kick out those ales day in and day out. So what's the, the difference in the brewing between a, a lager and an ale? Uh, a lager is, uh, really, it's, it's, um, oh my, you're going back 20 years for me. The, the last time I brewed a beer was about 20 years ago. And, uh, it was, uh, basically during the, um, when, when, when you're, when you're fermenting the beer, it has to be done at a lower temperature. You have to do it basically in a refrigerator. Okay. And, and so, you know, if you, if like home brewers typically won't be doing, won't be doing lagers until they get a little bit more advanced because who's got a refrigerator to, yeah. So. Well, this episode is not about how to brew lagers and ales. This episode is looking at. Um, how Luther, as a pastor, helped through his sermons and his writings to define the character of the home and helped the the home and the individual Christian start to understand what life will look like underneath the righteousness of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, let's get a little bit of, a, just going back to the last episode, really, in 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 the, when Luther started the Reformation, there was nothing close to equality between the church, uh, 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 we'll say, a the clergy and your regular folk. Right. The clergy were good and everybody else, well, you're not the clergy. Yeah. <laughs> and so when Luther uh, starts to look at how our royalty in the kingdom of God doesn't come through our holy acts, 
but through the act of Jesus Christ, then the royalty of being a part of the kingdom of God is not defined by being in the clergy or not. It's defined by your relationship to Jesus Christ. Well, even, I mean, if you look at, let's take a moment and flesh that out a little bit. When you when you look at the way common folk were treated, if you enjoyed sex, you were a sinner. Yeah. If, if well, and even in the context of marriage, even in the context with marriage, yeah. Uh, if 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 you cared about you, if you were lovingly raising your children and and you cared about their safety and their well being, well, you were dealing with you were worried it was about ordinary, common stuff, it worldly, wasn't worldly. worldly. You're, you 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 are you you are entangled in worldly things. So it was. The, the 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 perfection of the of the Pope, the perfection of the clergy was 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 that was seen as being the highest uh, aspiration of man was the, the the closest to God. Well, and the closeness to God was found in the the way that a person was living, and, and the big flip in the Lutheran Reformation is that the the closeness to God comes in the beauty that God has come to us. Not that we have, through our works, been able to rise up some ladder, climbing out of the pit of our sin, and finally we figure out how to raise one hand above the other uh, through our participation in worship or something like that. But the beauty of the Reformation, the beauty of the gospel, and this is what we're going to find he preaches about in marriage and in how you view the Lord's Prayer and in the two kinds of righteousness, is the the beauty of the gospel is that our identity is shaped by the love of Jesus Christ. So Luther, when Luther is talking about this stuff, it's interesting he's not doing this so much in his theological documents. He mostly talks about this kind of thing when he's talking directly to the people, when he's talking through sermons, when he's talking to do- in documents that are released to the regular folks. That's when he's addressing this. He's empowering those regular folks with with a, a new view of themselves, a new view of their worth in God's eyes. And this is part of the reason why the Lutheran Reformation, why Luther was so popular in, in Germany, was because the now if you're if you're a a a, a blacksmith, if you're a uh, working in 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 the, a merchant of some sort, now you have infinite worth. You are no longer just part of a human being. You are you have infinite worth in the due to the work of Jesus Christ. So let's go. What's what's on tap next? So we're going to look at the sermon on the estate of marriage. It's a sermon he preached in 1519 uh, at the second Sunday after the Epiphany, uh, when the appointed gospel reading is John chapter two, uh, the wedding at Cana. Okay, and then we're also going to be talking about uh, Luther's exposition on the Lord's Prayer where he had some ideas on how to teach the children and how to teach the regular folks what the meaning of the Lord's Prayer was. And and then we will look at Two Kinds of Righteousness, a sermon that he preached also in 1519, very likely on Palm Sunday. Uh, And that moment of seeing Jesus enter into Jerusalem, um, and how do we view our own righteousness? Are we uh, righteous because we are doing what we do or are we righteous because Jesus is going to the cross. Now one of the great things about two kinds of there's actually a big movement now. I I see some uh, some uh, theological students doing this two kinds of right two two KR. Two KR. It's uh it's kind of a controversial movement. Uh Charles Arend, uh professor at Concordia Seminary has written about how two kinds of righteousness is an important lens to read uh, Article 4 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. 
And, and as he writes about two kinds of righteousness, um, it, it's a way to view how to preach the, about sanctification, how to preach the Christian life. And uh, who has this righteousness, this uh, proper righteousness? Well, we're going to be looking at the two kinds. We're not going to get into all that. That's, yeah. uh, that's, that's a quagmire. So what we're going to do is we're going to sort of stick with we're what, just going to stick with the sermon. St- stick with the sermon. And, and we will be sort of talking a little bit in the two kinds of righteousness at the last part of the two kinds of righteousness. Luther starts hinting about the, the church and state. And so we're, we're going to sort of lo- use that as a springboard. There's a lot in the two kinds of righteousness. And actually, Luther spends a lot of time fleshing this out in subsequent discussions. But right now we're staying in the realm of, of the common folks of government, uh, the, uh, of, the, of the worldly things. Well, and here's an interesting time for us to talk about how do we get these sermons from Luther. And the sermons would come about in a couple different ways. Uh, one is Luther would preach a sermon, and then he'd take that text that he preached, and he'd craft it for the written word. Uh, now, this sermon on the estate of marriage that we're going to talk about, that he preached in January of 1519, uh, someone that was at that service wrote down his words as as quickly as they could, and then they took it to a publisher, and it became published, and Luther wasn't happy with the way that the scribe had caught his words. Well, and he actually, in his in his introduction, Luther wrote a little introduction to this sermon. And he complains about that. He says, listen, if you're going to write my stuff down, I, when, when you're giving a sermon, it's different than the written word. And, and I guess when I read that, I, I sort of got the sense, even if that scribe did it perfectly, Luther is, is making a point that the written word is different than the spoken word. So, Mike, I have a story about that. I had a woman in Niagara Falls when I served the pa- as a pastor there. Uh, she had a terrible time hearing. And so I talked to Carol about it, and she said, it'd be so helpful if you could give me a text of your sermon that I could follow along with as you preach. And that way, what I hear, I'm able to hear, but where there's gaps in my ability to hear, I'll just be able to look at the text that you wrote down. And I did that a few times, and I asked her, how did it go? And she goes, uh, I think there's something wrong because I couldn't find where you were on the page. I'm like, well, that's the reality of preaching. <laughs> there's a little bit of, uh, a little bit of jazz there, a little bit of, uh, extemporaneous, you know, uh, yes. just, you know, and that's, that's what Luther is saying basically is that, you know, when he preaches, he's got one, but if he's going to be putting something down for, for writing for, for all time, I mean, he knew that he was, uh, he knew he was, uh, uh, a consequential person, he, he recognized that, and well, and so he wanted to he wanted to get it right. Well, and he he actually I think was also critical of the person who had written down his sermon because he thinks that they were writing the sermon they wished he would have preached. He he says further, if anybody wants to start writing my sermons for me, let him restrain himself. Let me have a say in the publication of my words as well. There's a vast difference between using the spoken word to make something clear and having to use the written word. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk based upon the Luther-approved copy of the sermon. Um, It's available in uh, Luther's works, volume 44. And this is this is just Luther's thoughts on marriage in, in 1519. 
Luther continues to develop his ideas on marriage over the next 10 or 15 years. So this is sort of a snapshot, and we want to make sure that we're clear on that. Well, and one of the ways you can tell it's a snapshot is in the sermon, he'll call it a sacrament. Yeah. Uh, and he it's later on that he revises his view of what the sacraments are for in the church. But at least in 1519, he's still affirming that uh, marriage is one of the sacraments of the church. Um, later, he's going to uh, revise his view of what the sacraments are for. And uh, then he'll come kind of down to two to three as he looks at the Lord's Supper and baptism. And sometimes he includes uh, confession and absolution, and sometimes he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. So so what we've got here, and, and I've, we've already covered it once, but I'm going to, you really have to get your head around where marriage was, what the common people thought of marriage in 1519. Uh, and, and, you know, we covered this in the last episode, but really marriage and family was discouraged and even denigrated. And, and, and if you for, really wanted to be holy, join the church as a member of the, the clergy or as a, a, a nun or do something holy like that. And what Luther is going to do is say, uh, I think he's going to redefine the terms of what is holiness. So it's, it's sort of interesting. Like just when you look at Luther and the way he talks about marriage, he says that marriage, married love is the greatest and purest of all loves. I mean, that's in, in 1519, that's revolutionary language. So, so this is, this is very, very different from what the common man was hearing from anybody else in that era. So it's it's a very very powerful way for Luther to 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 really translate the theology of the cross, which we covered, I think, in episode five, the theology of the cross into the the regular lives of folks. You know, when in the, in the theology of the cross, there's this 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 idea that uh, just to quickly revisit that in the theology of the cross, you have this um, that that. Uh, our works, the, our works are not getting us on this Jacob's ladder, going closer and closer to heaven. Our works are just as we as we do good works, as we do more good things. They're our, a benefit to our neighbor, not of a benefit to our relationship. And that our sinfulness, and when we look at those good works, becomes more subtle. We it's easy for us to glorify ourselves. And yeah, so he, he said that, one of the greatest dangers of righteousness is righteousness, um, and that is our own self righteousness that we are achieving something grand and glorious through our works so, is most harmful to our relationship to the righteousness of God. So if you take that and you translate that into the common everyday, you know, boots on the ground sort of language, what that means is that we are all sinners. We are all sinners. And as all sinners, we are all equal. So there is no, you, you can't say that the priest and the Pope are better than the, than the common man who's married and, and raising his kids and, 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 and loving his wife. Right? So for all sinners, Mike, uh, you know, just to bring some hope to that, uh, what is the confidence that we can have if we're all sinners? It sounds like you've placed us all into the pit. Well, we, we are rightfully in the pit, but it is only through the work of Jesus Christ that we are saved from that pit. And we are all saved equally by this incredible work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I think that gets to one of the things that I find about Luther is how seriously he takes the danger of sin. That that sin is, is so bad, we're in such a bad predicament that our only hope can be in trusting in the work of Christ. So in the Middle Ages, 
the 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 church is teaching that perfect that that they have the the church is the perfect love and the, and the best love is the po- love of the pope and the love of the saints luther is saying all of this is wrong god doesn't reveal himself in the pomp and the power of the pope and the kings instead he reveals himself in the weakness and messiness of married love just like he showed his love in the weakness and messiness of the cross you know it's surprising to some pastors but some of the sermons i enjoy preaching are at weddings um, I, I enjoy preaching at funerals as well, which I don't know, sounds kind of odd to enjoy preaching a funeral, but I have such an easy word to share at a funeral. There is hope. There's life. There's salvation. Christ is victorious. The tomb is empty. And at a marriage, it's such an easy sermon to preach because I am asking the people to just love one another as a reflection of the love that we have received in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Amen. So what we there's only one more additional point I think we uh, we, uh, we need to discuss that was critically important to Luther. Uh, he says that the most important thing about raising a child, the most important thing about uh, is their faith. The most important thing about raising a child is their faith development. So that's this is this is the, it's in marriage that the context of 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 faith development happens. And so so Luther is is uh, really he he says one of the big problems. Is that you know parents they want to make sure that they didn't let their child's physical well-being overshadow their concern for their spiritual well-being, and so this is this is one of the uh, he says uh, uh, he says that bringing a child up properly in faith is the shortest road to heaven, along with admonitions not to spoil children. So so Luther goes through all this, and and raising kids is a really critical, and this is fifteen nineteen before he's married, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this is when he is he's looking at. He's looking at the world now from this view of we're all sinners. We're all broken sinners. We all are reliant on Jesus Christ. What is really important? Well, and the reason he's doing this in a sermon is because he is called to be a preacher in Wittenberg. Um, he has his time for lecture. He has his time for writing. Uh, a sermon is his time to talk to the people. And in his pews, well, not pews because they'll be standing up, um, but is people who are married with children. And I, I find Luther's comments about the parents who are indulgent to the bodily needs of their children, uh, to the detriment of their spiritual needs, uh, still very contemporary with concerns that pastors and, and people should still have. Uh, we should still be concerned that, yes, we take care of the bodily needs of our children. But if we do that to make sure that they're in the right sports or in the they're they're growing up and they're the fastest or, or whatever bodily need we, we would have. If we forget their spiritual needs, we've forgotten everything. I, I think another neat thing in this sermon, Mike, about marriage is how he describes love. He, he, he describes the different kinds of love. Now, first, when I think about the different kinds of love, I'm somewhat shaped by C.S. Lewis and the four loves. And, and C.S. Lewis wrote a book about the, the different kinds of love, the eros, the philios, um, the agape, and uh, oh, the fourth one just escapes me. Um, but for Luther, he describes the three kinds of love, a false love, a natural love, and a married love. And the false love is that which seeks its own. Man will love money and possessions because of what it does for him, he says. Then the, the natural love is that between a father and a child, um, a brother and a sister, a friend and a relative, that natural relationship that you are, you're related to this person, so you're supposed to love them. Okay. 
But the, he said the most uh, amazing love that is over and above the other two is married love. Because that kind of love is is not easy. It, you know, as a, bro- a brother, I love my brother because he's my brother. To, to love my wife um, is not just, it just doesn't easily flow. It takes a purposefulness to say, I will love this person. And so as he describes this married love, um, he describes it, uh, it, it's to say, it, it is you I want, not what is yours. I want neither your silver nor your gold. I want neither. I want only you. I want you in your entirety or not at all. He distinguishes that kind of love to be able to say to a person, I want you, not your silver or gold. I want you as that's not the false love of love of money. And it's not just a love by family connection. It is, he's almost sensual in the way he's describing that. I wonder if, you know, some of the young teenage girls were squirming in there as they were hearing him saying, I want you. It reminds me of a spot from the, the Song of Songs, you know, as it right, says, arise, my love, and come away with me. The winter is past, the spring has come. I would find that kind of an embarrassing passage to read as a pastor. Yeah, to preach on. Yeah. But it was, uh, it was the text that was at my wedding. And oh. my aunt read it. And and my aunt Gail was uh, so sensual in the way she read it. Uh, Christy and I just kind of looked at each other in this awkwardness. As she's <laughs> reading this. Arise, my love. And now, we had picked that text because we lo- love it. And that idea of the winter going away and the spring coming. And that being the, the character of the strength of love in a marriage. is uh, To find that spring of life awakening with the person you love. But it can be awkward, too. And so I, I hear this sermon from Luther, and I can just imagine him preaching to a people he loves and cares about as a pastor to his people. And, and a few of them being a little uncomfortable with it, most likely, especially given the era. You know, I mean, he's completely changing. The, the, obviously, you know. It, he's not afraid to talk about these topics in church because he thinks they're wonderful things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's take a beer break. Yeah, so Stroh's American Lager. Um, it's been around since 1850. Um, well, according to them, they, they say that they uh, Stroh family, I think if you look at the can or the bottle. Well, I was just looking at the bottle that said, uh, was... since 1850, Stroh's Bohemian Style Pilsner. Okay, well, the family, the Stroh family has been brewing beer since 1775. So that was in Germany. And then they came to the U.S. and, and Bernard Stroh, uh, really started started uh, to to brew at that point, uh, establishing his own brewery there in Detroit. Uh, I, according to the the website, they say he he started brewing in 1850 uh, with his own brewery at the Lion's Head Brewery. So you can see on the bottle, um, Mike, that there is a there's a lion. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's the that's uh, that's the famous Stroh uh, the Stroh logo. So I've. I've Stroh's was one of my favorite beers as a kid. Um, I keep saying as a kid. I, I'm in my 20s. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm old enough that I can no say. No incriminations. Huh? Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to admit to anything. So the, uh, we, you know, and, and of course I, we, I missed Stroh when, when it went out of business and I'm so glad to see it coming back. And this is actually, this is, I have to say, this is better than the old Stroh's. This is, this is really. really Beer has better. gotten better. It has gotten much, much better. You know, after after prohibition, uh, the beers came out and they were all pretty light, three point five, uh, uh, and they didn't have a lot of flavor. Um, the 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 microbrew movement really changed that 
and uh, and Stroh's is they they're bringing back like I said this is this is a beer a recipe from the 1880s I think is okay. what I, I read I have an article here someplace where the this is actually a recipe this is actually from the Stroh family this recipe came from the Stroh family from the 1880s so they've got a cookbook that they can draw upon I guess so it's I I never knew this existed but this is it really does thread the needle. Between uh, uh, if you if you want something with some flavor, but you don't want to go with a IPA, you want to have something a little bit lighter. I think Stroh's this is this is a good beer for that. It really yeah. threads that needle. I, I, personally, I like it. I think so it now is. Stroh's is owned by Pabst Brewing Company, right? Mm-hmm. Pabst, uh, yeah, I think they're owned by Pabst, um, and uh, it's you know the Pabst is they they let some microbrewers. This is actually brewed in Detroit. Uh, so, but I was trying to find the address. It's in Corktown someplace, but I, I don't know where, you know, uh, the, uh, it's the, at least it didn't say on the website. Anywhere. So the last episode we talked about a field trip to Bel Air. So now we've got a field trip. Do we just walk around Corktown and knock on random doors? <laughs> that might be worth doing. That, that might be dangerous. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, <laughs> if we knock on a door and say, Hey, I, I need some beer. Oh yeah. Down the road. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully that would be the answer. So anyway, so that's uh, let's let's get back. Uh, so that's that's good beer. Let's and again, you can listen to this podcast without a beer in your hand. You can listen to it with a water, uh, a coffee, um, or just as you're driving, you probably shouldn't have beer in your hand. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. So the second document we're going to look at is Luther's exposition of the Lord's Prayer for the simple layman. Uh, Luther, throughout his life, uh, would preach catechetical sermons. That phrase, catechetical, is something I can just say quickly. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a mouthful. Uh, But it's coming from the catechism. And it was the way that uh, the Christian faith was taught. Um, Now, Luther, in teaching the catechism... Uh, we may mostly think of the catechism as taught in a confirmation class. Uh, is you, you've got maybe a pastor or a, a youth worker or a DCE, uh, someone in front of a classroom, and you've got a bunch of 7th and 8th graders sitting in desks um, twiddling their thumbs. Um, that was not the model for how the Christian faith was taught. Uh, the Christian faith would be taught at specific sermons, uh, maybe even about happening four times a year where different parts of the catechism would be focused on. Now, so he would preach the catechism, preach the Lord's Prayer, preach the Creed and, and all those. But he, would, he also um, had um, some writing that he would do. Okay. So, so this was uh, what Luther had here is he, he's really diving into the Lord's Prayer like we, we've mentioned. Uh, I, I pulled a, a quote from Luther uh, from when this is actually from much later in 1535, when he was talking about the Lord's Prayer specifically, and he says, The Lord's Prayer is the greatest martyr on earth, for everybody grieves it and abuses it, and few cheer and gladden it by rightly using it. So this is, this is, and it makes sense that Luther really started, this is, this uh, exposition on the Lord's Prayer is probably one of the earliest, and you would know this better than me, Evan, but this is probably one of the earliest catechisms Catechetical. Catechetical. Thanks. I'll get that one. Probably after not a less beer. One of the reasons that word catechetical is so on my, is my, my doctoral thesis was on Luther's catechetical preaching. Good, good. At least somebody here is an expert at it. So the, so the, the, the catechetical preaching, this is one of his earliest catechetical preaching that 
after, you know, it, 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 we'll call it evangelical catechetical preaching. Prior to this, he was still deeply ensconced in the uh, Roman uh, uh, way of looking at things. It, it was actually right about the same period that Luther really had his, he really had the last pieces of his evangelical, and he called it the evangelical theology, uh, come in place. And so this is this is one of the first things that he attacked, was, or the first things that he he addressed was was the Lord's Prayer. So uh, there there was you know one of the things that uh, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about was some of the major points that that Luther makes when he's when he's going through this. First of all, he says, when you pray, keep it short. Don't just prattle on. That's that's one of the, you know, if I pray for, you know, 10 minutes, well, that's not worth as much as if I pray for 20 minutes. And boy, it's really worth a lot to God if I can sit there for an hour. It's this, you know, this this works righteousness sort of seeping into the prayer life that, that he's, he's trying yeah, to get away from. Your prayer isn't made more holy because it's longer. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that's one of the things that Luther is trying to, uh, trying to address. And, and especially in 1519, that was a huge problem. Uh, and, uh, the, and I, I was actually going through and there were, there were saints who, who were known for spending days and days and days praying. And so this was, it was a common idea that the longer you prayed, the, the holier you were. Uh, another one was think about what you're saying. Right. Don't just don't just talk. Don't just you need to think about what you're saying. Don't just go, you know, our father done. Yeah, he wants he wants people to be thinking about what these words mean. He does think it wise that, you know, even before uh, a child learns what all the words mean, that he does pray the Lord's Prayer. So he will teach um, the need to just, you know, learn the words. Um but then as we learn the words, then we start to learn how to use them. I almost think of this as a, you know, as a person's learning a foreign language, they may have flashcards with the words they're learning um, and they'll, they'll kind of flip through those words. Well, there is some need for that. Um, but then you, you can't just stay there. The, the next step is to know what to do with those words, to, to know why you're saying them. I think it is important to know the vocabulary of faith but then to know how to use the vocabulary. So he says, um, think about what you're saying. Okay. And, and then another one is don't be overly intellectual. I, I, I can use big words, but God can understand me when I use simple words too. God isn't impressed. This isn't, yeah, you're, you're not going to impress God with your vocabulary. So that's, that's, that's really good. And, and you know, one of the things that I, I, I hear people give these, these public prayers and, and some of them are like, so, Wow, you really have a heck of a vocabulary. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that the word invocation, um, it, it, I think of when I think of invocation, I just think of the start of uh, the liturgy in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I was asked uh, at one community meeting, they said, Pastor, will you come and speak the words of the invocation? And uh, so I thought, all right, I'll, I'll go there and have an opening prayer. Um, and then I sat down, it was really short, I mean, because I didn't, think anything of it. It was just start the, the meeting with a prayer. Then I, I kind of sat down and uh, they kind of looked at me. So then the person who had invited me to the meeting, I, afterwards I said, what, why did everybody look at me? He goes, well, usually the invocation is about five, 10 minutes long and it's a little sermon. I'm like, oh, 
<laughs> this is like what I did was like 30 seconds long. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> that, that is one of the, the expectations sometimes are, are surprising. Well, and then the fourth thing he just said is that the Lord's prayer is a great prayer. Yeah. You the know? best prayer. The best prayer is the Lord's prayer. And I have found that to be so helpful if I'm in the hospital with someone and I, I will have prayer for all sorts of things in my mind. And then I'll struggle to know how to put everything that's swirling in my head into order so that it sounds like as a pastor, I know how to pray because people think, well, he's a pastor. He'll, he'll come up with some great prayer. And then I'll start with the Lord's prayer and they'll just look at me and they're like, well, I could have done that. I'm like, yeah, you could have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, there's this, yeah, we brought a professional in here. Yeah, right? we should get some professional sounding prayer. <laughs> and all you're giving us is the Lord's Prayer. I'm like, yep. <laughs> That's not, pro- yeah. Like, like, like the, like, you know, something that you make up that you, you know, some real intellectual highfalutin sort of thing is going to be better than the Lord's Prayer. And, and, and it really is, Luther just cuts the legs out from under that one, mm-hmm. you know. What what's funny is you know I'm going through and I'm reading this this sermon uh, or this uh, exposition on the Lord's Prayer, and, and, and I was and I I can't help but quote Luther uh, here this one he he's talking about you know the first petition right and and he's saying uh, he's saying it really uses it as broadside against the church leadership. This is one of the things I love about Luther. I can't imagine anybody in the modern era and it was even more dangerous then i can't imagine anybody in the modern era taking such swipes at their leadership i mean this isn't just he wasn't separated from the catholic church at this point he was this was he was talking about so let me, let me just get this quote in and we can talk a little bit about it he says um today the world is full of these pernicious insolent vile and ungodly spirits who blaspheme God's name more shamefully with their respectable lives than others do with their evil lives. Yeah. There's actually a website, Mike, where you can, um, through kind of a press of a button, come up with different um, put downs of Luther that he has for people. So if you're looking for uh, a put down for someone and you want it to sound especially powerful, powerful, (laughs) I don't know, Uh, uh, because Luther, uh, he was, unabashedly uh, sharp in his critique of those who were pulling people away from their trust in Christ. Um, I think Luther has a pastor's heart for people, but when he saw someone using their position to turn that person away from trusting in Christ and to trust in their own works, he, he would be uh, as, as ruthless with that person as he could be with anybody. Um, the, person that we need to rebel against, revolt against, to fight against is the one that would teach us we don't need Christ. And so most of Luther's threats and vile words that just sound like that comes from a pastor are directed against someone who is turning people away from Jesus. And as you go through Luther's uh, exposition on the Lord's Prayer, they see this over and over again, where he is, he's saying, hey, we need to recognize our shortcomings and then take comfort in Christ for our deliverance. So, so the character of this exposition of the Lord's Prayer, um, it has a, a nice introduction. And then he just goes petition by petition of the Lord's Prayer, um, teaching us uh, what it says and how it can be a part of our prayer. So like for, I'm just going to give an example here from the second petition, thy kingdom come. Really, this is just three words. Right? So 
three words and Luther, that's all he needs. Yeah, so then he talks about God's kingdom, how it hasn't come to us uh, personally or into this world through our own actions. Uh, uh, so in other words, when we are worldly, uh, we are rejecting God in our hearts, but when we are truly Christian, we are aliens in a hostile world. He uses this uh, thy kingdom come to kind of break into this conversation about what it means to look for the kingdom of God, uh, what it means to live in this world. And he starts to kind of flesh out um, where holiness is. Right. And so we, we've we got this, you know, and this is something he'll flesh out even with more sharp language in the large catechism and, and the small catechism. So we'll... we'll we're gonna the the this is this is all coming, but this is a very early take on on Luther's ideas on the the Lord's Prayer, which it's still it's it's amazingly, I would say amazingly sharp even in fifteen nineteen. It's a, it's got a lot of bite to it, uh, and I think it's got a lot lot of bite to it even for us today. You know where it, it hits home. At, I'll just speak for myself. It hits home for me. That it makes me think a little bit about my prayer life and and what I need to be doing. And I think to see the the revolution of faith in Christ coming about as we teach the basics of the Christian faith, that as he would teach and preach about the Ten Commandments in 1516 and 1517, as he uh, writes this exposition of the Lord's Prayer, um, in, in, it was published in 1520, uh, you start to see that Luther teaches the Christian faith and the revolution of faith in Christ through the basics. And I, I love this notion that we don't have to be really complicated and overly intellectual in what we say to teach the revolution of faith. Uh, we just start with the basics and let the word of God be that lamp in the darkness that shines the way. Okay. Well, let's uh, do you want to take so, another beer break. Yeah, let's do that. You know, one of the things to think about Stroh's is that Detroit is coming back. Detroit is coming back. And, and so as you, you we look at a beer that had kind of left Detroit and is now coming back, it's just a reminder that um, there's something, I think, of pride to be able to say the 313 is coming. Back. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's right, 313. I used to have a 313 area code. Uh, you know, so that was that was something back in the day. My, my, my phone number was 313 blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, that was, took a lot of pride in that, in that phone number. You know, it was Detroit was, my family comes back, go, has been in the Detroit area where my family helped settle Detroit 300 years ago. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. So we've been here for many, many years in the Detroit area. I moved to this area, uh, sophomore year of high school, January of, uh, of 91. Uh, my dad had been a pastor uh, a chaplain in a hospital setting in St. Louis, and then received the call to be a pastor of a church in Mount Clemens. Okay. And so then uh, make the move up here. My dad actually moved a month before me, and I spent a month uh, living um, in the house of the uh, just someone that was in the band. Uh, whose parents were generous, and my dad was kind of looking for someone to help house me for a month so I could finish the semester there in St. Louis. Okay. And then I, I arrive up here, and um, it, it turned out well to be in Mount Clemens. It was a that's right. You grew up in Mount Clemens. Now, well, as much as arriving my sophomore year of high school is to say growing up in Mount Clemens, but yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we. Uh, I've, I've lived here in the Detroit area my entire life. Uh, my family has been here for many, 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 many years. We 
holy cow, we have all sorts of stories about, you know, the, when the Indians were in this area and all, maybe that's, maybe that's another podcast about Detroit, but that's, Detroit Strohs was certainly uh, an important part of us growing up. I remember the old Strohs brewery had a, uh, had a tour and I never had a chance to go on that tour. Well, you thought it'd always be there. I thought it'd always be there. And I was a dumb kid. You know, I, I wish I had gone on that tour. I had heard great things about going on the tour and, uh, uh, people would you'd go on the tour and then you had all the free beer you could drink at the end of the tour. And of course my friends could drink a lot. And so, you know, they, they came back and they said, you gotta go on this tour. And so I, I, uh, uh, like, I can't believe I didn't go, but that was, that was, uh, that was anyway, they closed down. Like you said, I thought that I thought it was like one of those things you always thought it was going to be around. And so, no, it wasn't, it was it closed down shortly afterwards. So, uh, is this Strozen available for everybody right now? Yes. I mean, did you just go to Myers and find I, this? I or? actually did. I just went to uh, where did I pick this up? I think I picked it up at, at Kroger. Okay. So it was it's actually a very good beer, and I I do encourage others to give it a shot. But it's an interesting thing because you probably bought this like in a six pack, and it was it was kind of a craft thing. It was really special. Yeah, very different from the old days. Very different from the old days. So let's get back into our third document. This is the two kinds of righteousness. And actually, we've spent a lot of time talking about the first two. This is, this is the most theologically important document you're gonna, we're gonna be talking about today. Yeah. So this is uh, a sermon that was preached, uh, probably Palm Sunday in 1519. So this actually goes back to before the meeting with Cardinal Cajetan. No, that would have been 1518, the fall of 1518 with Cardinal Cajetan. I thought this was, I'm sorry, this, I thought this was a Palm Sunday of 1518. Well, there's actually some, it, it was, the, the notes will say, it's not certain whether this sermon was preached late in 1518 or early in 1519. Oh, okay. There's suggestions that it came from Palm Sunday in 1519. Okay, okay. But there, it's not um, set in stone. Um, it's one of those things that didn't come with a nice header text to it. <laughs> right. Um, so so now we have, uh, uh, it's a really amazingly brief. I mean, I've heard the term two kinds of righteousness. Well, so let's define the two kinds. Okay. So, and we'll, we'll flush it out as we go, but he uses the term alien and proper. And so alien righteousness is that righteousness that's not inside of us, but comes from outside of us. Using that word alien as um, Mars, you know, as you think about someone from Mars, well, not maybe don't think of someone from Mars, although there's a new horror movie called Live that's about life on Mars found and attacks people on a space station. But that word alien is just used to describe as something outside of yourself. Okay, okay. And so that alien righteousness he's going to talk about as that righteousness that is of Christ, that becomes yours as it's applied to you. And then proper righteousness is that... uh Righteousness that is uh, what you do with God in fruit of the alien righteousness. So, so here we are. We're starting to see the, the rough outline of the two kingdoms. Later, Luther starts getting into the two kingdoms of the, the kingdom of the sword, the kingdom of the spirit. And these are both very different realms that God works within. And there is mm-hmm. the... The going back to the kingdom of the spirit is this alien righteousness happens within the the spirit the the kingdom of the spirit, and then 
what we do in this world would be sort of Kingdom of the Sword, the, the a physical world type thing. So it's 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 yeah, it, and that's kind of how the two kinds of righteousness that is uh, showing up in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession that Chuck Aaron writes about that's kind of hid into that controversy. Yeah, this is this is at least my read of this, and uh, you know, I'm I'm no theologian i'm no expert i'm no academic but when i read but this you're a part of the priesthood of all <laughs> cheers to that one um the the you know, as i as i read through this i couldn't i couldn't help thinking about the two kinds of righteousness i couldn't help thinking about i mean that, the, the, two, the kingdoms. two kingdoms i couldn't help thinking about the two kingdoms i couldn't help thinking about gee this is sort of starting to sketch out where you know there's the there's a realm of the spirit and there's a realm of the world and mm-hmm. that we we are actually functioning in both of these realms that you know we have this two kinds of righteousness and the two kinds of lives that we have right and i think another place to look at that is the freedom of a christian as he talks about um because you know you are righteous in Christ, you're now free to love your neighbor. Um, you don't have to resent your neighbor as someone who you are obligated to help. Uh, you are free. Um, but that's freedom of Christian. So let's just talk a little bit more about the alien righteousness. Well, so in the alien righteousness, it's we already talked about that. It's the idea that the righteousness is outside of ourselves. It's alien to ourselves. Uh, that allows us to be accepted by God. This alien righteousness is really the work of Jesus Christ. Then it gives it to us as a gift. Yeah. So the righteousness of Christ is is uh, is that which justifies us, and we receive this righteousness of Christ through faith. Now, the second part of the sermon was about the what he calls the you know, proper righteousness or you know, the, 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 the more worldly righteousness. And, and he talks a lot about how, how to make use, how to live out the alien righteousness in today, in the world. And, and that's, that's the second part of the sermon. Yeah. So the second kind of righteousness, that proper righteousness, um, it only exists as a fruit of the first. Yes. Yes. And, and this manner of life, um, is spent, uh, profitably in good works, um, yeah. Now, now he does talk about the, you know, the just as Christ was crucified, we need to crucify our desires for self. That is the, the that's the first thing that has to happen with, with that with that alien right, righteousness. We die to self is one of the things that that he hits on. That there is a a, a, a crucifying the desires for self. And then second is is putting your neighbor, looking at your neighbor and saying, okay, loving your neighbor, how do I love my neighbor in this? And then there's a funny thing. There's a third, the third one, which is living in meekness and fear of God. Those are the three things that I picked out. Right. And that starting point of crucifying the desires of the self um, is is for Luther is that training in righteousness, that training of to live in the righteousness that you have through Christ means that in your own life now, what you do with your body is not to gain a good relationship with God. Put away that that vanity that your hands, your eyes, your ears, and all your members are used to bring about a good relationship with God. Put that away. Crucify that. Um, put to death that vanity. And, and now live... Um, in the confidence that God has given you this, 
this flesh so that you can be of service to others. So Luther touches on a, a handful of things on, on what this means. He's, you know, he states, You are powerful, not that you may make the weak weaker by oppression, but that you should make them powerful by raising them up and defending them. To, to take all that power that you have, that you are a part of the kingdom of God, and, and that power is used not to make others feel bad. But that power is used to lift up the world. And, and this, I think, is still helpful advice for Christians in engagement in a, an increasingly uh, secular America is for what purpose has God redeemed you in his kingdom? And it isn't to smash the little guy. Yeah. Yeah. And the, then he says, you are wise, not in order to laugh at the foolish and thereby make them more foolish, but that you should teach them as you yourself would wish to be taught. That's a tough lesson to learn as a, you know, as a, a young pastor to know that God had placed me as a pastor um, for the purpose of helping and aiding others, not to make others feel how smart I am. Uh, that no, God, yeah, all that education. You got yeah. all this education in your back pocket, you know, and, and that's not what it's there for. Right. And I think that's something that I think is learned in the school of experience that why have I learned what I've learned? And it's not to make sure everyone else knows I've learned what I've learned. I've learned what I've learned so I can know how to serve. And that really goes for all of us, right? As mm-hmm. as we go through life, the, the whole idea isn't to bully people with what we know. The whole idea is to help others with what we know. Well, it's a struggle in arguments. If I feel like if I just said what I say loud enough... <laughs> Good luck there, eh? Right. Then people would listen to me. <laughs> yeah. But so as as you quoted, you are wise not in order to laugh at the foolish and thereby make them feel more foolish, but that you should teach them as you yourself would wish to be taught. There's such humility in his notion of righteousness that we are righteous not for the purpose of trumpeting ourselves. We are righteous in Christ for the purpose of then using this to help our neighbor in need. Now here, those two are helping the others. Now this is actually the third one mm-hmm. is really tough from uh, well let's read it here uh you are righteous not that you may vindicate and pardon the unrighteous uh not that you may own not that you may only condemn disparage and punish you added a negative in the beginning it's uh, you are righteous that you may vindicate and oh, oh pardon i'm sorry the unrighteous I, I you, not right. that you may condemn disparage and punish right so uh, so we don't take our pla- yeah, we don't take our place of victory for the purpose of then punishing others. But it's uh, so. But this is why it's tough. Is that here we are? You know, we, he says, "Okay, you are righteous that you may vindicate and pardon the unrighteous." Now, you know, you have to remember that unrighteousness is another word for evil. So, so this is at least shocking to my ears that we're supposed to vindicate and pardon evil. Really? I mean, is that is that really what he's getting at here? Well, I think in that notion of being able to vindicate and pardon the unrighteous is to know that, that you've been given a gift to share it. And that you have been given the gift of knowing Jesus so that you can share Jesus with others. Pardon and vindication in this world will only come about as people know Jesus. Now, and, one of the things that Luther gets into in this, in the last part of this, he talks about vindicating and pardoning the unrighteous uh, he does say that a more mature Christian will hold the unrighteous uh, accountable for their own good. 
and that this is that is the that's the, the uh, as an as a mature Christian. This is not something he advises for somebody who is an immature Christian. Well, because if it's in the hands of an immature Christian to work with the unrighteous, we will so naturally slide into the character of condemnation and disparagement. Yeah, um, this is the you know the the new Christian who is so joyously found Jesus. That then just makes everyone else feel like nothing. And feel miserable. Yeah. Feel miserable. And, and that's not what it's about. What, what what Luther is saying is that as we mature in our Christianity, we are to hold people accountable for their own good, not to not to revel in our righteousness, not to say that, oh, I'm such a good little boy, aren't I? That it's it's more to humbly hold them accountable for their own good because of what's best for them. And that's that's a that's a high bar, but that's something we are called to. So let's see. To let's want let's go through a final review of all this. So in the in the Lord's prayer, uh, Luther points out that we're all just sinners, equally flawed before God. That's very very different between you know, what what other pastors and preachers yeah, were saying. Tremendous that. humility, incredible humility that that he's showing there. Very different than what the church was teaching at that time. Uh, he also talks about, you know, that and when in the public square, uh, that we need to hold people accountable in the public square. And so he's sketching out his thoughts. Uh, eventually, I think he's, this is going to get into, you know, sketching out his thoughts on the Pope and holding the Pope accountable. So that's, that's, uh, that's yeah, sort of revolutionary. Yeah, in the kingdoms of this world, we, God is using the authorities to hold one another accountable. Yeah. And that's you know, the, the, the authority of the, of the state, the authority of the church that, these, because they're both under God, and Luther's view that there there is now this is this is sort of unusual. Uh, I, I think this is going. I don't know how this translates into the modern vernacular, but that's that's something that in Luther's era he saw a role, and we'll get into that with uh, open letter to the Christian nobility, the need for the the laity. We'll call it the laity to hold the church accountable. Well. I- yeah, and that Christian nobility is largely because if if the church isn't going to reform himself, someone needs to do it. Yeah. So, uh, and then uh, the, the, I, I was I, I guess I saw that you know, the the idea and the authority, the power and the authority of the Pope was in the crosshairs here for Luther, and yeah. so even well, I, and you know, Mike, is we've kind of talked about the Pope quite a bit. Um, and it's interesting to consider in the 16th century, the office of the Pope that Luther is addressing uh, may not be how people in America right now are talking about the Pope. That's very true. The The, the Pope was a political, much more of a political animal in the 16th century, much more involved in, uh, in a lot more. Not really know. functioning as a pastor, as more of an emperor. Yeah. Yeah. He had, and he had land. He had he had a lot of land right there in the middle of, of Italy. And so that was, he was, he was more, I think you're right. I think that he's almost like an emperor more than a, than a pastor. So this is all going to continue to play out in the documents that are going to be released in 1520. Those are the, 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 the big ones. 1520 was a, a tie, a, a, really a change in the tide in the Lutheran Reformation and, and things dramatically changed then. So we'll be getting into that. Uh, but right now, I think uh, our next episode, we're going to start diving into, well, we're going to talk a little bit about the death of, um, of Maximilian 
and the next one. And, and some of the things, some of the agreements that were, were made, uh, at the, uh, at the election of Charles V that really saved Luther's skin going forward. So that was, that, that's coming up at the next, the next episode. So I think that's, that's all we've got. You got anything else, Evan? No, I, I think, you know, I, I enjoy the conversations we have, Mike. And for anybody else that wants to be a part of the conversation, you can do that by emailing us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Or you can check us out on the web. At, and you can leave comments on any of the posts on the website. Uh, that's a great idea. And what's the website? Uh, graceontap, all one word, dash podcast.com. Uh, we are going to, one of the things that we're talking about is maybe getting together for some beer at some local breweries. So keep your ears out for when that may come and you would be invited to that, whether you want to drink a beer or not. That's right. I'm sure we can find a pop for you. Uh, soda, depending on what state you're in. Pop, right. <laughs> pop, it's Michigan. I don't know why I said soda earlier. Yeah. Your Missouri roots. Uh, so let's say thanks to Josh. Uh, thanks to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan. And some resources were helpful for us. We'll, we'll put the specific links of these resources on the blog post connected with this episode. Uh, but we had information from uh, different universities who have put their their materials online, including Andrews University, the University of Pretoria, uh, the Christian History Institute, and the Oxford Research Encyclopedias. Uh, also wanted to give thanks to uh, Word and World, and uh, there was a, a a great article by Else Marie uh, Weiberg Patterson uh, in the Annotated Lutheran Volume Two. I, I I thought that was that was very helpful. So and then finally, thanks to the folks at BeliefNet uh, for their their reference to the letter from James Madison saying that Luther was critical in his ideas on separation of church and state. That's all I've got. Prost. Prost. <laughs>